0: Ladies and gentlemen, Want to be better, richer, happier? Of course you do. Welcome to the Be Less Crap podcast. Let's go.
1: A podcast devoted to helping you become a less mediocre human. With your host, very much a work in progress herself, Charlotte Sherston. Hello and welcome. My name is Charlotte and this is the Be Less Crap podcast. And today I'm rather delighted that our first cab off the rank is the very lovely life coach, author and anxiety whisperer of sorts, Tammy Kirkness. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, Charlotte. It's such a pleasure. The good news is we've got about 40 minutes together and I'm looking forward to digging into your expertise around anxiety and overthinking which seems to be a pretty prevalent part of our lives, especially if the likes on my Instagram feed are any barometer. So um, let's just kick straight into it. One of the things that I always think is that if there's anything that we're all feeling at the moment, it tends to be anxious. I was reading an article that said, I think back in 2018, which was pre-COVID, obviously, that their demand for books on anxiety had risen by 25%. Um, and (laughs) yeah, and you've obviously brought out a book this year, which was really superb timing, uh, which for those of you that don't know, it's called the panic button book. And it's a a wonderful sort of choose your own adventure, step-by-step guide to neutralizing uh, worry, overthinking, and anxiety. And it's also gone into the bestseller list. So well done for that. Um, (laughs) But what it does show is that obviously the demand for these sort of books is not dissipating. So I guess my question is, do you think this surge in interest reflects a genuine spike in anxiety, or do you think just more people are aware of it and comfortable talking about it?
0: I think a little bit of both. So on one hand, everybody is becoming a little bit more okay with talking about all things related to mental health. But the best data that we've got as far as how this crazy 2020 year has impacted mental health and wellbeing is to look back at the data from the H1N1 time. And we know that back then anxiety rose by about 33%. So about a third extra people had anxiety then. Uh, And so it's pretty likely that that's what's going to have happened throughout COVID. And so if we combine those two together, everybody getting a bit more comfortable in talking about it, some of the stigmas starting to drop, and the craziness of 2020. Yes, people are, have a greater appetite now than they ever have had to talk about things like anxiety.
1: It's a shame, isn't it? Because life is actually getting easier. But I think, yeah, things like obviously social media and everything slowly, we are getting more stressed out about various things. Um, Your own experience with anxiety, Tammy, was sort of hiding in the shadows for a little bit. Um, It was sort of something that maybe people didn't think that you would suffer from because you're sort of nailing life at the time and traveling and working. And can you give us a little bit of a explanation about how you sort of found out that you had anxiety and how your diagnosis came about?
0: Yeah, I essentially had to come out as an anxious person, <laughs> which is something I never anticipated. Uh, I, In hindsight and in reflection, I was very, very, very good at masking and looking like I just had absolutely everything together. And from an external perspective, I can now look back and go, oh, well, that makes sense that nobody really got it. And, you know, I had to really impress upon my family and and some of my friends no 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 really I am I am struggling I I know that I can explain this very articulately however I'm still struggling this this whole knots in my tummy thing and struggling to breathe and overthinking and ruminating it's this is real you know It, it might not look like it but it is you know
1: Yeah, so I mean, just so can you explain what is the difference between, I know it's not the right word, but regular anxiety, high functioning anxiety, which I think is what your diagnosis was closer to, and then just the standard 3am head noise that probably a lot of us are really familiar with.
0: Yeah, Uh, anxiety is a normal human functioning response. You know, it's there to keep us safe and, and keep us out of danger. The the traditional diagnosis of anxiety, which is referred to as a generalized anxiety disorder, that is when the anxiety and the worry is so pervasive that it prevents you from having uh, being able to do regular things in your day. So it might prevent you from going to the supermarket, it might prevent you from uh, maintaining a relationship or uh, from being able to get up in the morning and go to work. Whereas the high-functioning anxiety equivalent, you can still do all of those things. However, you've still got all of the other underlying symptoms of excessive worry, more than, more than the average person. Everyone's going to worry, but this is the excessive kind. This is where, you know, you are tired but wired This is where you're an excessive list maker. Uh, You know, you have a diary that is scheduled to the hilt. uh, And on the outside, you look completely calm and like you've just got everything together. So the contrast between the two is that in, in generalised anxiety, we can really see if somebody has that, level of, of struggle or lack of coping. Whereas in the second kind, it's very hard to deduce from the outside.
1: Yeah. That, that I mean, I have to say when I was listening to some of the podcasts that you were talking on and reading some of the stuff in the book, certainly some of the side effects and symptoms resonated with me. I'm quite a sort of go high, you know, sort of power person and like to think I've got it all together. <laughs> and most of my friends would probably think I do, but one of the observations I've had certainly this year, kind of emotionally, the wheels have fallen off a little bit, a couple of times. And I don't know if this is something that you recognize, you seem to have touched on it before. So maybe I found that people tend to judge you as one type of person. So, you know, they might say, oh, Charlotte doesn't take herself too seriously. She likes a laugh, a couple of glasses of wine. Nobody sees you cry. They would be, uh, that sort of thing. And so I found from experience this year when I, I have had a little bit of vulnerability and I've maybe admitted to someone, oh, you know, I have actually been a bit freaked out about that or I'm a little scared to start doing this. I found that some people are really uncomfortable with that. They, they're like, oh, oh uh, not, no, 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 not Charlotte. No, uh, what? And they don't know how to deal with that. Did you find that as the similar experience you were saying with your family and stuff?
0: Oh, particularly with work colleagues and, and friends and people who were a slightly further distance away where, you know, they were used to me being able to just sort out a situation or uh, confidently talk about something or or be fine. You know, Tammy's fine. Tammy's great. And then, you know, when you start to um, peel back the layers and say, oh, you know, actually, I didn't really fall asleep for hours last night because I was worried about this and I was worried about that and, you know, it was all all really overwhelming and actually everything feels crap <laughs> right now. I'm nervous and worried and I don't even know where to start. The people who had seen me in a certain way, it's like they it jolted them somehow. Like, oh, no, 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 but, but you always know how to do this or you always can function in this certain way and having all of a sudden having a personality with a couple of extra dimensions can be quite confronting for the people around you and I'm, I'm sure other people have had that experience too.
1: Yeah, I think it just puts people slightly out of their um, comfort zone. So, I mean, I think the thing that we can probably agree on, even if you haven't had an actual diagnosis of anxiety, there are a lot of people out there who are worrying. They're worrying about things that might happen, things that have already happened, things that they have absolutely no control over. So in your experience when you've been working with your life coach clients um, or the corporate wellness stuff, what are the easiest, best things you've found that can have the biggest impact in terms of improving that aspect of their life.
0: It's going to be slightly different for everybody, but learning to breathe deeply and regularly is one of the easiest things, and it gets talked about all the time on these kind of channels. So I I tend to try not to talk too much about it because people are aware of this. You know, we know we should drink more water, and and. Uh, breathe deeply and meditate and do all of these sort of things, but yes, that's still really vital. One of the ones that's not as frequently spoken about is uh the link with the the vagus nerve. so I'm not sure if you've heard about it, but basically it's the body's biggest cranial nerve that goes up from up in our head, in our brain, all the way down to our stomach uh, and essentially it transmits information up and down. And so if we're feeling nervous or apprehensive or our stomach is just feeling a little bit, you know, butterflies sitting in there or or any any of those kind of things, it transmits all of that information up to the brain. And through this nerve, this is the part that promotes the rest and digest system, so the parasympathetic nervous system. So if we can do things to calm down and soothe that vagus nerve, we're all going to be in a better place. Yes, do your deep breathing. That's a that's a given. The things that we can do for this are we can gargle water. So if we gargle one. water to the point where our eyes start to water, that's that's really doing its thing. Uh, if we use our vocal cords when we sing along to a song in the car, great. Uh, if you come from the the sort of slightly more esoteric side of things, you might be chanting along to a CD or a Spotify. Um, anything that we can do to soothe that vagus nerve, it just puts everybody in a better space.
1: That's great. I really like that. I, I've sort of heard little bits about it, but I hadn't heard it described exactly like that. So that's terrific. Um, I wanted to talk about um, one thing I liked about the book as well is that it's not just for people who themselves might be suffering with anxiety. It's it's a really useful toolkit for anyone who might have someone in their life who's suffering. It might be a child or a partner or a friend. Um, and I know from experience if you haven't felt what they're feeling, uh, or that's not how you respond to things, it can seem like, whoa, this is weird. What do I do with this? And, And you might try and fix and help. And in fact, you're just being more annoying. What would you say, I guess, two questions. One, what should you look out for with people who are in your life that might be suffering and maybe staying silent about it? And second would be, how can you, are there any universal things that are really helpful without being annoying?
0: Uh, to to sort of keep your eyes open on on your people that that make up your world, it's it's really any changes or shifts in behavior because the indications for me are going to be slightly different to the indications for somebody else. Uh, so any shifts in the normal behavior that you see of somebody generally is a good place to start. But the more common general things, Uh, If people are really snappy, uh, particularly more snappy than a previous time, if they're leaving a lot of things to the last minute and procrastinating, if they're a bit of a perfectionist is a major indication because the undercurrent of anxiety is essentially feeling like you're out of control. Uh, And so how do we control things? Uh, We become a perfectionist. Uh, those are some of the things that you can look out for and as far as some of the things you can do to help first and foremost ask how how are you doing and then when they say yeah good you say no 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 how how are you really doing you know you've had a lot on at work or you know I know you had a big school assignment if it's a kid or you know, I, I've noticed you haven't been hanging out with your best girlfriend as much as normal. You know, how are things? You know, are you sleeping well at night? You're still, you still eating well. Where's everything at? And wait and be okay with the discomfort that might follow after that. That's that's a really tricky thing. You know, a lot of people know the the concept of asking if somebody's okay, but being able to be, a solid, grounded, centred receptacle for their response is something entirely different. You know, we don't need to be their psychologist or their counsellor or their coach, but being a safe place, a judgment-free space is vital for anybody to open up to you, whether they're your best friend, your, your wife, your husband, somebody just started dating, you know, somebody you got to uni with, doesn't matter. As long as they can feel the energy that you truly care and that you are actually listening and that you're non-judgmental, it makes all the difference.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that's a real gift to be able to do that. And it's probably harder than it sounds. I think it's interesting, the thing about asking, because that was one of the reasons I knew a few months ago that the wheels were falling off because nobody asked me because I'm obviously always fine. Um, I think I was standing in the the post office (laughs) And the woman behind the counter just went, Hey, how are you? (laughs) And I completely, this poor woman in the post office, she wasn't ready to hold space for me. Um, And I don't blame her, but uh, yeah. So I do think the thing of asking is, is very valid. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk about the, the way you, you, you divided up your book, um, just explaining to people. So there's four sections, there's um, parenting, relationships, socializing, and then living and working, I think. And I mean, it's really very sort of simplistically and easily laid out, which isn't to be an insult to the book in any way. It's why it's been selling so well, I think. But if you could just explain a little bit about the different sections and how it's, it might say that, you know, if you're feeling, you're comparing yourself to others or your partner's driving you nuts, or you're feeling like a bad parent, why did you choose to lay it out in that sort of decision tree format? And how do you find that that's probably more helpful than some of these big sort of boring books on anxiety?
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) the, The book came about essentially after a really awful evening where I had a panic attack and my husband was standing there and, well, boyfriend at the time, but he just, he didn't know what to do. And I wished that Sort of the, the lucid coach version of me was standing directly next to me saying, ah, oh, Tammy, this is what you need to do. No big deal. Step one, we've been here before. Step two, do this. Uh, and so I am the daughter of both an, an engineer and a nurse. So as far as yin and yang and masculine and feminine goes, I'm a bit of an interesting mix. So you know, having things laid out in a really logical, structured manner really speaks to a part of me and helps me to digest information. And then having things that have care and compassion woven into them is also really important to me. So uh, being able to help people in the midst of a moment of worry or comparison or perfectionism or panic, for me, really needed to have both of those elements. And this book initially I wrote for myself. I I wrote it sitting on the couch and it was in a pink pen in a notebook from Kmart that said things like, uh, you know, Tammy, are you worrying about the future again? Yes, do these things. No, go to the next question. And so converting that into a book after I'd been using it for a year And it it neutralised my anxiety every time. Uh, It it seemed really clear that if it was working for me and it was certainly working for some of my clients, uh, maybe this would work for other people as well. So essentially in the book, on the left-hand side of the page is a question, a really simple question like, are you feeling attached to an outcome? And then on the right-hand side, it says, no, turn the page, yes, do these things. Um, and as, as an example, I'll have a look at that one, which is literally step one, identify what it is. Step two, read this aloud or in your head if people are around. I now release all attachment to the outcome of this event. No matter what happens today, I will still be okay. I cut all cords of attachment to this event happening in a certain way. Inhale deeply and exhale all tension. You know, it is it is simplistic and it's it's easy, but those, those much thicker books on anxiety, which are a treasure trove of information on their own, are wonderful when you're feeling okay, but if you're in the midst of a moment of can't breathe, heart pounding, sweaty palms, 70,000 words just isn't going to cut it. So uh, that's where it came from. And then the four sections naturally unfolded themselves because they're the areas that we get worked up or uptight or nervous or antsy or we overthink or overanalyze, you know, as a parent, as you know in a relationship, I think everybody's probably wondered if the other person likes them or if they should be in that relationship or if it's still helping them. Uh, So that's how the four sections came about as well.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's brilliant. I think the combination of breathing and also, even though it might sound simple, some of the phrases, I remember reading that your brain believes what you tell it the most. So obviously Mm -hmm. if you were just sitting there saying hateful things to ourselves, then we're going to be feeling a lot worse. So I think just having those positive affirmations is a really nice way of just getting used to having the rhythm of that as a meditation. Um, Now let's talk about parenting. Um, which is a section in the book. And it's also something that a new stage, I believe you are seven and a half months pregnant. Is that right? Uh, indeed. Yes. Indeed. Congratulations. For waddling. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that, got the waddle to prove it. Um, so I don't want to freak you out, um, but I'm probably going to freak you out. I don't think I had a anxious bone in my body before I had children. Um, and that was 21 years ago. And you basically worry about everything, for the rest of your life. I remember coming home from the hospital, walking down these rather steep steps to our apartment with my daughter and thinking I'm obviously going to drop her on her head. I now have uh, teenagers and older children and I wake up worrying, where are they? When are they coming home? (laughs) And what the hell are they doing? Um, So how are you bearing in mind, you've kind of got this history of obviously high functioning anxiety and wanting to control things. And parenting is obviously one of those things that it's like, wow, it is out of your control, but you do your best. How are you sort of planning to prepare for that? Or or what are your thoughts around that?
0: (laughs) I think pregnancy is a terrific bridge to get there because there is a lot of things that I've experienced so far that are completely out of my control and the timing is completely non-ideal and you know it, it in certain moments scrambles your brain and it, it gives you fogginess and other times you get physical pain in your body and you didn't anticipate that so so far I think this has probably been quite a good training ground to sort of get it ready uh for me I feel quite lucky that I've got lots of girlfriends and I've got sisters that have had babies and and children and that's definitely helped me see things from an external outsider's perspective but with anything you just don't know until you've experienced it yourself so I'm going to do my very best to utilize all of the techniques that have worked in other ambiguous situations and give them a red hot go. And if they don't work, I'll figure something else out. That could know? be book
1: number two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have book to say, two. I mean, one thing I wish I'd, I, I was quite young when I had my uh, my daughter and I wish I'd been a little bit more open to accepting my friend's advice who had experience. I think I was a, trying to be a control freak about it. Instead, I just read every book and it's like, I know. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I would warmly encourage you to take um, as much advice and and help, please help Every anything that people ask. Um, one of the things I forgot to mention before about the book, which I really liked is the fact that it's got a really positive sort of veins running through it. So a lot of that, I don't know, around this whole subject, it's sort of people can tend to feel a bit of a failure or that they're messing up. Whereas in the email communication I've had with you and through the book and through various things that I've read, You talk about it in a very positive way that people with anxiety are, in fact, really brave. Um, So I just wanted you to kind of touch on that just because I think that's a really nice thing for people who might be suffering to hear or think about.
0: Uh, I think people with anxiety are some of the bravest humans on the planet. You know, everybody's, let's say everybody walks into the same room. But the people who have anxiety feel like there's a gunman in that room, and somehow they manage to keep going and, and they manage to cope, or if they don't cope, they reach out for help or they ask their friends or whatever it is. You know, there is such an incredible learning process for people who have anxiety to continue to uncover what makes them feel safe and what doesn't make them feel safe. And it takes great courage to reflect like that on yourself and figure out how you're going to cope and and how you're not only going to cope but how you're going to thrive and how you're going to use what a lot of other people would see as a weakness but use it to be able to impact your own life and your community and your family and the people around you, and I just think, you know, it, I'm in such admiration of people who feel frightened and somehow keep going. Uh, that, that is that blows my mind. I, I think they're incredible and brave, and yeah, I take my hat off to everybody who struggles in this way.
1: I think that's a, uh, such a nice approach, and I, I think it also probably feeds into some of what you talk about in the book is, you know, you might be thinking I'm shit at this, or I'm really bad at that. And you go, hang on a second. I- I've done this before. I didn't like mm. it, but I got through it. So it, it's sort of building resilience by each horrible struggle that you have. And you actually manage to survive that, um, it builds that, that resilience muscle, which obviously essentially is, is going to be a coping mechanism in itself.
0: Oh, without a doubt. And sometimes we're going to bugger it all up again.
1: <laughs> you know, you thought you learned the lesson the first time,
0: uh, but you needed to go through it again <laughs> and maybe again and maybe again. And that's okay. You know, as humans we are flawed and messy and sticky and that's also one of the greatest parts about being who we are. You know, that that's what gives us a distinct fingerprint that is exactly us and if we don't like something, you know, we can work on it or mitigate it in some way but, you know, being flawed is pretty fabulous and the more that we're vulnerable and talk about that stuff that up or, you know, I thought this was going to go really well and it didn't or I fell over in front of literally a bunch of people it brings people closer to us when we can embrace that most of the time. It's hard to do all the time, but when we do it most of the time, we're on track.
1: Oh, look, and I agree with you. I think there's such comfort in knowing that you aren't alone. Like we are all weird and flawed and you know, whatever you thought, believe me, someone else has thought it. So I think that's really nice. I had just a couple of like kind of left to field questions just with regards to the life coaching when you're helping clients, I was just curious how do you find the ability to be really positive and help people? But if they're struggling not to take on that energy, like to keep a boundary and, you know, which is, I think can be the same as if you're helping someone in your life. How do you keep those boundaries without kind of being sucked into their energy or or someone, if they're having a negative time, is that something that you, you've you had to kind of learn or is that kind of an instinctive thing?
0: Oh, it's a, it's a daily practice. And if if for anybody else who's in any kind of helping industry, so personal trainers, nurses, doctors, uh, police officers, you've got to be so conscious of your energetic hygiene because if you do start to take on everybody else's stuff, it's not pretty, you know, you instantly get a cold, <laughs> uh, you know, your body starts to break down, your relationships get messed up. So you've got to be really careful. So, the things that I do lends a lot from sort of the Eastern tradition. So before every single client I see, before every interview I do, uh, before every time I speak on a stage or do a keynote, I always do what's referred to as an invocation, but in everyday speak, essentially setting an intention to say, you know, I call upon all of the, the helpers that know and love me, you know, please allow me to be the channel through which the best information that's in the best and highest good for that person, that group, that company to receive at this moment on this day. You know, I ask for complete harmlessness for that individual, that company, for me, uh, for my business, and I'm just going to let all the rest go. And one, that does an amazing thing because it takes the pressure off me having to use my brain Uh, and force through and squeeze through all the information that I've ever read or ingested somehow in my life. And then at the end of that session or interview or keynote, I say to myself, you know, I isolate and release all energy that isn't mine, take a big deep breath in and visualise everybody else's crap (laughs) basically coming out and then I visualise any pocket of myself that I may have accidentally left behind coming back. So I say I call back my energy from all people, places, times, events, situations, scenarios, back to me now, and then I breathe all that back in. So these things take time. They absolutely take time, but it means that I am more energised than when I started. Uh, It means that I don't take on other people's stuff and I can be centered and grounded for that individual or for that group, which is really important for them to feel seen and heard and valued and nurtured in the way that they need on that day. Uh, so I recommend that for people who are in any sort of similar field or they've got a big meeting going on coming up or you know they've got to do a presentation for uni or a big conversation with their partner to set an intention beforehand, you know, this is the outcome that I'm hoping for, this or something better would be great. Uh, and then afterwards releasing other people's energy and calling your own back. it It's worked for me for
1: years. I like the sort of ceremony of it because it's, it sort of has mm-hmm. a beginning and an end and therefore you're moving, you know, moving on as yourself without all their stuff, which I think is great. Um I know that you, one of the things you talked about in one of the podcasts I listened to was that you are an energy healer, which I don't really, I kind of, I used to think that stuff was kooky. Now I'm really into it, but I don't really understand what exactly that means or what that would look like if I was going to go to someone for an energy healing session. Is that something you specifically do, or it's just something that's kind of interwoven with the other work that you do being a life coach, et cetera?
0: For me, it's interwoven with the life coaching. So, for a lot of people, I generally work with people for six, six months at a time. Uh, and, you know, if anybody's seen, you know, a, a therapist or a, a psychologist, sometimes you get to a point where you sort of talked about something until you're blue in the face and it just doesn't shift. It, you know, it, it's just not going anywhere. And it's at that point when I use energy healing with clients to you know pull out any of the energetic blockages that have been sitting there that are preventing that from releasing in some way um so for example uh you know a, this has happened with many many clients particularly female clients uh they've been single for what feels like an eternity they've gone on all these dates it's just not moving along they're feeling lonely and disheartened and disappointed and then if we do an energy healing in a lot of the cases when we clear out maybe a disappointment from when they were a kid or the energy of a previous partner that they were with or you know they were in one particular situation where they heard one sentence said to them and they just kind of sucked it in and absorbed that sentence and it stuck with them going around and around their head ever since. Once we can lift that out and clear that out, all of a sudden the channels for, you know, pulling to them in their case, somebody that they might match nicely with, just start to clear and all of a sudden the dates feel easier and they flow better and they can speak with more authenticity than they had before as far as how that actually happens there are so many different styles and modalities out there but the style that that i do is one where they repeat things out loud and then breathe out the energy while i'm sitting on the other side and consciously facilitating that process so it happens a little faster and uh, it's it's often an intense process you know you you don't come and get an energy healing uh, so you walk out feeling like you just did a lovely meditation often there's lots of tears and things that you didn't realize and it's it takes great courage to show up to do something like that for sure
1: Yeah. I think a lot of this stuff where you're doing the work is like, there's that sort of little bit of a hill you've got to climb at the end. You do feel a lot better and you're ready to take off, but it's yeah. Some of the yucky, (laughs) icky stuff before it's like, Oh, I definitely have some reservations about some of it. Um, okay. Lastly, (laughs) because it's 2021 or it will be by the time we air this podcast, um, I saw on LinkedIn that you were hosting a workshop where you were doing like holistic goal setting session, which I thought sounded rather fabulous. Um, so I don't know, obviously, we don't have time for a whole workshop, but if you were going to offer some advice or suggestions for people going into 2021, wanting to start the year with maybe some holistic goals to live their life more authentically or closer to their values, where would be a place to start? What would you suggest um, they might they might do?
0: The place to start absolutely is with the core values. So what's important to you? So many people set goals or set new year's resolutions that sound about right. You know, they say things like, oh, I want to lose 10 kilos because lots of other people are doing it, or they want to make partner at their law firm, because that's the next logical step. But we actually want to say, well, what are the things that make me shine? What are the things that light me up? And Uh, In that particular workshop, you know, we start off with a list of a 100 different words of things like family, health, beauty, adventure, spirituality, uh, wealth, all of these different words. And we essentially pull them down until we've got five things, five values that feel great to us. So the most common ones that I see are family and health. They're the two that come up almost in, in every workshop. Uh, But it might be creativity or it might be travel. uh, It could be all sorts of different things. And once you get crystal clear on what those are and what that actually means to you as opposed to the person sitting next to you or your partner, that's where we actually want to springboard from to set goals. Because for me, for example, one of my core values is beauty. And I think I pushed that to the side for so many years because i had this idea that beauty was on the surface and it was all about makeup and and having immaculate hair and and when i realized that no 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 beauty to me actually means that things flow with ease and with grace and you walk into a room and you feel something from it and it feels nice to be in a certain space or around a certain person, I went, ah. well, actually, that is really important to me and it is imperative to make me feel better. And, And that's where I say, well, what are some of the things that I can do in a practical way to make that a reality? And a goal might be surrounding that, something related to decluttering a room, Uh, Or it might be around getting rid of clothes that I feel schlumpy in, (laughs) you know. So we want to start with those things that feel the most important to us and then using those as the platform, create goals that feel in alignment, like if they happen, our soul will sing and our heart opens up and our shoulders go back and we just feel great. That's what we want when we've achieved something, you know.
1: I think that's brilliant. Um, I, I think the, what I'd like, love to ask if you've got anything that I can put in the show notes that might help people start with those sort of words and, and, and trying to identify that the, the values, cause I know for a lot of people, it's something that they do every year. And I know some people who are like, oh, wow, that's actually not a bad idea. What do I actually want my life to look like? What do I actually care about? So <laughs> I think that's a really inspiring way for people to start 2021. Um, So I just want to finish up. I forgot to tell you because we had Zoom dramas at the beginning, but last night I had a dream. And typical fear dream, because this is my first podcast recording. And instead of being in the nice quiet of my apartment, I was suddenly in this huge, echoey mansion. There were toddlers screaming. The doorbell went every few times. I forgot to press play, I mean, record. And you went into labor. So the, <laughs> so the good news is, none of those things have happened in today's podcast. <laughs> um, the better news is, you've been brilliant, Tammy. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I think you've given us a wealth of information. I'm going to stick lots of stuff in the show notes, um, especially about your book, The Panic Button Book, and about your life coaching. Uh, Although I know you want to take a little bit of uh, time off for the next few months, well-deserved. But I hope you'll come back and maybe see us um, sometime later in 2021. Oh, it's been such,
0: such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I feel very honored to be guest numero uno.
1: Yeah, (laughs) thanks so much, Tammy. That's awesome. Okay, over and out that's all the time we have this podcast is brought to you by the fine people well me at thinrichhappy.com if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more be sure to subscribe or if you really enjoyed this episode please leave a review which will help other people find the podcast for extra podcast goodies you can visit be